welcome to KitCast, the podcast made for students by students. Here we promote and share insights in the innovative industries of tomorrow, startups and their founders. My name is Luthia and I'll be your host today alongside Adele who will introduce herself right after. This program is offered to you by Warwick KitCast. You can find more information about us on our social media, which will be in the description box of this podcast. Hi everyone, Adele here. Today we are joined by Edwardine Butler, founder of LensCrafter, otherwise known as the world's largest optical retailer, and of Vision Express, which might be more familiar to our listeners in the UK. Good afternoon, Dean. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, we're so happy to have you. So we have a few questions that we would love to hear the answers to. Um, but first, we'd love to hear about your journey from being a student. So, you know, what you studied and how you got from being a student to how um, you're a businessman now. Well, it's it's kind of a strange story because I never intended to get into the business world. I studied chemistry and physics and maths, believe it or not. <laughs> wow. And wound up with a master's degree in theoretical chemistry. Mm. I still remember the title of my thesis, but I, I can't tell you a word that's in it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I wound up more or less accidentally getting into marketing at Procter and Gamble. Wow! And th they invited me to come talk to them uh, when I was at Michigan State University in America, finishing up my master's degree in uh, chemistry. And at the same time, the reason Procter & Gamble wanted to talk to me is I'd also uh, finished up a master's degree in international uh, marketing, an MBA in international marketing. Wow. Which I didn't really intend to use, but I wound up at Procter & Gamble in traditional uh, brand management, as it was called in those days, you know, fast-moving consumer goods. Mm -hmm. I spent 14 years doing that. And uh, had some great successes in America, especially with marketing major products like the number one selling coffee in America, the number one selling dishwashing liquid, the number one selling laundry detergent, and so forth. And a friend of mine who was in sales at Procter & Gamble, you know, out in the regions somewhere, not a guy in the, uh, in the head office, inherited his his wife's family business that he didn't want to have anything to do with. Oh, wow. But, the, the, you know, the father-in-law passed away and there was nobody else to run the business and everybody in the family was working in the business, you know, those kind of mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. And he went off to run this little three-store optical retail business in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. <laughs> God, not was it New York City? <laughs> he goes down to Baton Rouge to run this business, and he hated it. And then he found out that uh, forty-eight states in the United States did not permit marketing of optical goods. Oh, really? Forty-eight fifty states, and you know, you, you you look at me like that's a surprise. <laughs> You know, it was illegal to advertise eyeglasses and optometry services in the United Kingdom until 1985. Really? It was, and not only was it illegal to advertise them, if you went in a shop, the windows had to be curtained. That's shocking. It really wasn't and clear, though. A lot of them had to be in drawers. 
And the optician took them out, and he was not permitted to put prices on them. How come? Well, because it was a profession. (gasps) Yes, these are professionals, and professionals are going to tell you what you need. Mm -hmm. But but this was pretty much true all over the world in those days, and except in the Far East. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, the state next to Louisiana permitted advertising of eyeglasses. And they had a big commercial organization there called TSO, Texas State <laughs> And then it became legal in America because of a uh, of a Supreme Court lawsuit from a lawyer who said he ought to be able to advertise because we in America have the First Amendment. <laughs> so I have the right of free speech if I'm a lawyer in America and you can't tell me I can't use free speech and apply it to marketing. Wow. And this guy won in the Supreme Court in America. And of course, that struck down the prohibitions for uh, any professional. So now all of a sudden you could advertise and Texas State Optical was going to come storming into Louisiana. <laughs> or if you live there, ever go there, by the way, don't say Louisiana. We say Louisiana, but to the people down there, it's Louisiana. Oh. All right, we'll keep that. <laughs> yeah, Louisiana. And just like if, if you're a citizen of Texas, you don't say Texas. What do you say? Texas. Texas. <laughs> <laughs> it's the biggest state. In the continental states, Alaska's bigger, so they're the biggest continental state. <laughs> so, I guess you didn't ever know that you wanted to start your own business. Then, like, what pushed you to take this leap and well, join your partner? Well, I didn't join him. Mm-hmm. He said to me, "What am I going to do? Who's going to come storming into Baton Rouge?" So I said, "You're going to have to do your own marketing." And that's what I was doing at Procter & Gamble. So I said I'd help him. And in the face of Texas State Optical storming into Baton Rouge, we took his monthly sales from thirty-eight dollars to $164,000. My God, wow. And it was kind of, ooh, maybe consumer goods type marketing works in optics. There's a point in marketing yeah. <laughs> for a reason. I just did this with him for a few years. And I once said to him, how do you make eyeglasses? He says, I don't know. The wholesaler makes them. He says, I got to go there today when I was visiting him. And he said, do you want to go, go see them? They'll sh- they're nice guys. They'll show you around. <laughs> so I went in this wholesale laboratory and thought to myself when I left, wow, it's easy to make eyeglasses. <laughs> it takes like 12 minutes to make most eyeglasses. Wow. Maybe maybe forty if you have a complicated prescription. Mm-hmm. So I thought, why don't you make them in the stores? Well, you don't make them in the stores because the machines cost too much money, and because it's hard to train people to do it, and all this kind of thing. And anyway, one day he sold his business, and he was delighted to be out of it. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, this this is going on for a few years now. A couple of years later, he says, "Remember how you used to say we ought to make the glasses in the shop." Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, are you going to get back into optics? No. <laughs> but he says, there's a guy doing that in Newark, New Jersey. Let's go take a look at it. Can you meet me in Newark, New Jersey on Saturday? And I remember to this day, all these years later, saying, I don't know why I'd want to meet anybody in Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> but 
I flew into Newark. We went and looked at this business, and they were doing. Uh, uh, they had all the machines in in the shop, and they were doing a full lab service in the shop. When we left, I said they're they're missing an opportunity. Mm-hmm. They're doing a forty eight hour service. Why isn't it a while you wait service? Mm-hmm. So a while later, he calls me back. No, you know, another few weeks go by. He calls me back and says, "I've got my architect on the phone." He said, "If I build a while you wait store." Will you do the marketing? <laughs> well, and I said, okay, wow. yeah, let's give it a try. And while you wait, morphed into glasses in about an hour. That's that's great. So wait, I have a question. Before you had the machines in the shop, how long did it usually take to get your prescription? Then two weeks. In those days, you filled out a piece of paper, you wrote mm-hmm. the prescription on it. You told the wholesale laboratory what frame was wanted. You mailed this piece of paper to them. Later, it became a fax machine. You know, modern technology. (laughs) It took two weeks. By the time they got the frame and did the processing and so forth, it was generally two weeks, maybe even three weeks. And that was Mm -hmm. regarded as okay. That was acceptable in those days. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we opened the store. And we figured that uh, you had to do about 20 pair of glasses a day to break even. And that was, oh, five times what an ordinary optometrist was selling in those days. Way above. The first day we were open, we did 21 pair. Wow. A few Saturdays later, we had problems even servicing the customers. We'd hit 100 pair a day. My God. And that business today, is the third largest optical retail business in America. It's called Vision Works. Well, I said to my friend, you know, this really works. I said, how about if I do this in Ohio, will you help me get started? Because he knew all the suppliers by then, right? <laughs> so I quit my job at Procter & Gamble, and we talked about splitting up the United States. He said, I only want two states. I want Texas and Louisiana. You can have the other 48. <laughs> So I started Lens Crafters in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1983, and within four years, we were the largest optical retail business in the world doing $440 million a year. And $440 million a year, I got to tell you, in in the 1980s, it'd be $2 billion today. My God. Hmm. But back in those days, to get financing and all that, you had to be profitable. Nowadays, all you have to have is EBITDA, which I always thought was a cheat. It's a it's a way to look profitable when you're not. And you know what they're doing today? They're doing E-B-I-D-T-A-C-O. What is that exactly? Adjusted for COVID. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's another way to dress up the pig, right? But anyway... We had the we had the world's largest optical retail business quite quickly. I had sold it then to a financial group, which was a U.S. shoe corporation, which is a, a retailer that had averaging twelve stores in American shopping malls. And I had a, a five year contract with them, and I uh, ran the business for five years. And then I had a non compete, and I thought, well, what do I do next? And I thought, well, maybe I'll go somewhere else and do the same thing. And they speak English in England, right? Let's try it. So we went to Gateshead. Mm-hmm. 
in the lar- then largest uh, European enclosed retail mall and had a huge success there. Huge success. I thought, wow, it even works in England, even though <laughs> everybody said it wouldn't. <laughs> so then I thought, well, there are only five regional shopping malls in England in those days. And if this is going to work, you got to make it work elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So you know where we put our second store? Middlesbrough. Could you say that again? Even English people don't know where oh. that is. <laughs> it's up on the coast, mm-hmm. and it's a very rundown old shipping sort of center. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people wear eyeglasses there. So I said, we got to try, you know, uh, one of these types of places. So we went to Middlesbrough on the high street, and guess what? It worked. Even And we wound up expanding all over the United Kingdom and from there, other countries. And as of now, I've personally had 2,200 optical retail stores in 29 nations. Wow. And experience in in a lot more. That's crazy. So what we did was we took traditional consumer goods marketing, which is something I like to talk about because very few people understand what works and what doesn't Mm -hmm. work. Because if you're in traditional consumer goods, fast-moving goods marketing, what you're trying to do is market products in which there is no inherent interest. <laughs> how do you how do you market uh, how do you market washing up liquids? Mm. Is that exciting? Not, not the sexiest product, I have to admit. <laughs> no, but we do, no we and toothpaste and deodorants and. Uh, all these sort of things, but the, there are ways to do it, and there are ways that are known to work well, and that's what I applied to eyeglasses, which to many people are a grudge purchase. Mm-hmm. Not an exciting product either. Uh, so that's what I've done all over the world, including, including, would you believe, as a challenge, what I call my optical adventure, <laughs> which was the then Soviet Union. Mm. And I had a guy from the Soviet Union wanted me to come over there and partner up with them. And I said, not unless we have a majority stake in the business, which they said we don't do in the Soviet Union. Foreign countries and foreign companies are not allowed to have mm-hmm. majority foreign interests. But I said, well, it's too bad. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to do it. And guess what? wound up having the first majority foreign-owned business in the Soviet Union. This is before the breakup of the Soviet Union. That's so interesting. That's crazy. I later found out who the guy was that signed off. And it was a KGB guy who investigated foreigners. He was not a spy, not that kind of guy at all. Although today everybody knows his name and they all think he was a KGB spy sort of guy, which is not true. It's a guy named Vladimir Putin. Oh. (laughs) uh, Putin personally signed the paperwork for us to get into business. And then they had a big political Mm -hmm. mess. And the guy I was working with uh, at at the end of the political mess, when the guy who was uh, president of Russia got back into power, he said, look, write to him personally and tell him you still want to do this. And I did, and that was Gorbachev. Wow. Just casual name dropping. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And today, that business is the largest optical retail business in Russia. 
Mm-hmm. So it worked. So we've done all kinds of places all over the world, including mm-hmm. Australia, uh, most of Europe, uh, Argentina. And it's always worked because the mm-hmm. people in optical retailing are these professionals. <laughs> and marketing is a dirty word. Mm-hmm. And they don't believe in being near another optical shop. And yet I say to him, now, if God came down from heaven right now and walked up to you with the money for you to open a shoe store, here's all the money you'll ever need for a shoe store. You say, I don't know anything about shoes. You say, but I'll take the money. Where would you, where would you open your shoe store? Intuitively, you'd put it where there's other shoe stores, right? Because people go shopping and want to shop around and have a choice. Optics works the same way. The closer you can get to a really well-operated mm-hmm. optical store with your optical store, the better off you'll be. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of the big picture story. What else can I tell you? I mean, what I'm still so shocked and kind of want to know more about is how did you, you know, go from being in Procter & Gamble, really established company, you know, earning a, a, a safe living to then jumping and taking that risk to start your own business. What what kind of a mindset do you need to have to make that leap? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll tell you what people have always asked me about. Mm. And they say, oh, if I'd have had an idea like yours. But you know what the answer to that one is? If you've got the guts to do it, let's go have mm-hmm. lunch. When we finish lunch, you'll have an idea. Yeah. The, the idea is not some miraculous new thing. In fact, I had a professor in college that was one of these guys in America in graduate school that taught for a dollar a year. Mm-hmm. You know, he's very wealthy and he had a teaching contract after he retired for a dollar a year. And he mm-hmm. made his money in two businesses during his entire life. He'd only had two different businesses. One of them was making hammers. <laughs> the other one was making file folders. That's so bizarre, but everybody needs hammers and file folders, if you think about it. Just like a lot of people need glasses. This guy, you say there's only three words that you need to know if you want to be really successful in a manufacturing business. Now, he was in a manufacturing business. There's only one There's only three words you need to know. Combine, eliminate, simplify. (laughs) I'm writing that down right now. (laughs) Combine, eliminate, and simplify. Combine, eliminate, and simplify how you make hammers. Mm. And you'll beat your competitors. You can underprice them. You can get the contracts. Mm. Wow. Combine. But uh, why did I do it? Well, First of all, you've got to remember I cheated. I used somebody else's money, what in America we called OPM, other people's money. (laughs) That was my friend's store, right? Yeah. My friend's store, which is now VisionWorks, was started with OPM. Mm -hmm. So I got to see if it was going to work before I did it. But the, the real key here is when you know something's going to work, just do it. Yeah. Don't get frightened. Just just go do it. And that's what we've done all over the world, just like the Soviet Union. I thought, you know, this is uh, going to be a real adventure, but let's try it. 
Mm. And it worked. So yeah. it paid off. Yeah. Our first, I'll tell you a funny one, our first lab manager. By that time, the Soviet Union was starting to fall apart, right? People were losing their ability to do what they used to do. Our first lab, uh, we needed to train somebody in operating all the equipment and supervising the equipment operation because it wasn't that equipment wasn't even used in the Soviet Union. It was all American-made equipment in those days. Mm-hmm. The first guy that we ever had as a lab manager had been the captain of a Russian nuclear submarine. Wow. He was looking for for something new to do. And he was great. I'll tell you, you can run a nuclear submarine. You can make eyeglasses. You can do anything. <laughs> yeah, you can do anything. That's, it, it's amazing hearing about all those stories with you. I'm so grateful to have you because it's just, uh, you know, stuff we don't really hear about. And it, it's just crazy world it sounds like a completely different time but you want to see what happened and obviously it paid off and um i really admire that spirit of saying you know if you have that conviction that it's going to work you have to go and you have to have the guts and uh, i think we really need to think more about that and uh, you know just take the leap um we- i i understand a lot of cultures around the world now having you know lived all over the world and operated and hired people and so forth all over the world uh the uk is one of the least risk-taking entrepreneurial mm. environments on earth. Really? Yes. What makes you say that? Well, be, well, first of all, how many really successful startups of interesting new businesses have come from the UK? Very, very few. There are some. Of course, you can always name some. Mm. But it's not like in America where you get cheered on. And... Uh, the, the thing about the, the the UK that I've always moaned and groaned about is when you want to promote somebody who's really good, frequently mm-hmm. they turn you down because they say that their family will be upset. Really. And I'm talking about what we would call blue collar people mm-hmm. who became a store manager. If you want to turn them into a district manager, I once had... I once had a guy say to me, well, I've lost too many friends already with the success I've had here. Yeah. Wow. No, it does does kind of intitu- in, like intuitively feel like a very different culture. Like we were just, you know, talking with this year earlier, talking about how, what we were going to talk about on the show today and, uh, and thinking, yeah, obviously it feels like there is a big difference in terms of culture about entrepreneurship and starting on business between the U.S. and other countries. It just feels like the U.S. is kind of, you know, cultivating that that mindset of starting your own, starting your own, starting off on your own, and just trying and giving it a go. Whereas here, maybe it may feel like taking risk is a bit more dangerous. But when you think about it, is there really such a difference between the two different um, environments? If you want to start a startup in the U.S. and if you want to start a startup startup here, is there in the U.S. you get cheered on by your family and mm-hmm. friends? You really get cheered on, and that doesn't happen that much here. Mm. I mean, you look at one of what I think is one of the, unfortunately, very few really good people we have in government today, Rishi, Rishi Sunak, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Mm-hmm. Where did he go to school? I'm going California. California. <laughs> University. Yeah. You know, he, he was educated in that culture. Mm-hmm. Now you guys are in a pretty 
privileged culture yourselves. Mm -hmm. You're in one of the very, very few really good business schools in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you don't see it like people going to other universities and studying business. Mm -hmm. There's you've got you've got great professors, you got great mentors, but you yeah, it's an exception. Definitely, definitely an amazing business school. Yeah, true. We are very lucky. Um, I actually wanted to ask you a question about. I think we may have touched up on it a bit earlier, but um, so today we were saying, you know, when you talk about your friends, you see a lot um, of startups kind of popping up everywhere nowadays. It feels like there are more and more, and you know, ways to get funding are different, maybe more diverse. We, you know, we've seen the rise of crowdfunding campaigns, um, and there's this kind of feeling that being an entrepreneur now is maybe more easier than it was in the past, like. Do you think that um, since you start, like you start your own successful business, um, it's easier to start a business now, or do we just face different challenges? How do you think that has changed? I think it is easier now, mm -hmm. but not a lot easier. The challenge today is funding, mm. and as soon as you move into serious funding, like if you need yeah. a couple of million pounds or something, that's not. You know, the crowd doesn't fix that one for you, right? <laughs> uh, as, as soon as you start to have a success and have uh, the need for what I'll call real money, yeah. <laughs> uh, then you got to be really, really careful because the people who do that kind of funding in the United Kingdom uh, are venture capitalists. Yeah. And I call them vulture capitalists <laughs> because they are not normally the right sort of people to help you that they're only in business for themselves. Mm. Yeah. But um, the key, the key thing is to get funding where people don't have control and in the United Kingdom. Uh, well, in fact, around the world, but especially United Kingdom, the venture capitalists that invest in startups are generally going to rah, 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 you got a great idea and I'll put in a million pounds and we'll do this and that. And then they build in what are called ratchets. And what a ratchet is, is if you don't achieve this goal, uh, I get more shares and more shares and more shares. Hmm. But they intentionally build in ratchets against goals you cannot achieve. Hmm. But you'll think you can achieve them, and they'll encourage you to think you can achieve them. And before you know it, they've mm. taken over your business. Uh, that's not what you want. Uh, if if you've got a really great business idea, you've got to maintain control, voting control. You've got to find a way to get uh, what I'll call friends and family money, or something other than venture capital money, or get funding from overseas, mm -hmm. which which can work. Uh, you, there are a lot of European groups, German groups in particular can be very good at helping with funding. Okay. Uh, certainly uh, California based uh, groups can be very helpful with funding because they've, they've just got massive money. And if you're in mm -hmm. that kind of a business, their job is to find a place to put their money. Uh, they don't want to have cash in the bank. They want to have money working for them, and yeah, mm -hmm. and and but but you don't want people who have the attitude 
that they're really in business to somehow or another get the business away from you. Yeah, of course. Well, that, that's a lot to think about. And that sounds like great advice for any uh, aspiring entrepreneurs listening to us right now. And maybe for us one day to see how we never know. Um, well, let me just mention one thing quick while I'm thinking about it. Another way to raise capital, if you've got a pretty good business idea mm -hmm. and you have a pretty good idea of who are the people who might want to own it someday, yeah. don't sell them any of the business at all. Sell them an option to buy the business based on mm -hmm. a certain formula at a certain point in time. Mm -hmm. Say, I'll, you give me two million quid, and I'll, right now, for the option <laughs> to buy this business in five years against a certain formula, mm -hmm. they have no votes, no nothing right now. Just an option. Well, you still have control. They have no control. Don't let them, don't let them have any votes. If you've got a board of directors, which you will have, but so it's not let them then. have let them have observer rights yeah. on the board mm -hmm. but don't give them votes and if you've got a good enough idea and mm -hmm. they believe in you they'll buy an option it's just like property developers do it all the time right they buy options on property we don't think of that much in the uk but it's done quite frequently in the in america yeah no that's a really good advice really good advice that's crazy. But um, thank you so much for that. Um, I think we have time for maybe one last question because obviously we, as much as we, I would love to stay here and speak for hours and hours, we do have a time to, to kind of respect. Um, but I think we we want maybe to know um, if you could, I think it's a very common question, obviously, but if you could give yourself, um, your younger self, the one that was starting the business, um, some advice or what would you do differently um, maybe advice that our students, our listeners could apply to themselves, to, to their lives right now and to their careers and to their ideas of starting their own business. Do you have any advice or anything that you would do differently? Yes, I do. There is one thing that I have consistently not done well in my business career, and it is not moving on people who didn't grow with the business. Mm-hmm. If you have a business that is growing and growing and growing, inevitably you'll have people who are very good and very loyal to you and work very hard, but they don't fit the business now. Yeah. Uh, don't do like I've always done and create a, a make-work job for them. I mean, I, yeah. worked, I once did that uh, with doing audits of store laboratories, right? I had somebody do that and then, a year later, I found that it turned into a 24-people department. <laughs> God, a bit over the top. Yeah, the, the, you, but you, you take really good care of the people who've done well by you. I mean, you you you, you get, do everything you can to support them financially until they've got another good job. Yeah. Don't dump people out on the street. But, oh, you, yeah. but you move people on because it's better for them and it's mm -hmm. better for you. True. Of course. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the hard decision because obviously if there were people that work with you for a long time that, you know, they love good work. And also maybe in a way it's a, a bit of a comfort having them around and keeping them around if yeah. it, it all went well. So it is a hard decision, but it eventually will be the best for everyone if everybody can but, move on. But. but I'll tell you what you usually find, and it, which is then a great relief, hmm? you find that the other people who report to you 
are whispering behind your back after you move them on saying, why didn't he do that earlier? <laughs> it always seems so obvious after the fact, doesn't it? Right. Um, it seems that's obvious. Right. God, that, that, I mean, that's just such good advice. And your story is truly incredible. You've come such a long way and you've done so much for an industry that, you know, people might not even give a second glance to. So it's really interesting to hear your story today and kind of learn from you and, and you know, how far the disruptive industries have come mm. since, you know, you started your business. So um, thank you. Honestly, thank you for coming on to the podcast today. Well, it really was my privilege because I think if there's anything I can do at my age today, I'll be 76 in two months. You don't uh, look. Well, I, I still feel like I'm 20 and just getting started. Uh, I, I, if there's anything I can do, it is to pass on some of this experience. Mm -hmm. So anytime I have an opportunity to do it, I'll do it. Oh, that's incredible. So, uh, all right, guys, that's all we have for you today, unfortunately. Thank you, Dean, for coming onto our podcast and giving us insight into your career. Uh, we'll be happy to welcome you for an event uh, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned to our social media for the event announcement and details. And don't forget to keep an eye out for speaker events, new podcasts with Lucia and I, um, the opportunity to join us by becoming a member and getting a subscription. Um, in order to do so, please follow our social media pages at Work Kickstart. And um, yeah, just keep listening to us and keep reading the articles. And if you want to learn more, please visit the websites in the description box. We'll have Dean's details there as well and if you want to hear more about current affairs in our industries you can go to our website and um, read the read our articles that will also be in the description box so thank you for joining us today and if you're interested in taking part of our podcast please message our instagram or facebook pages privately and we hope you tune in again next time thank you dean thank you dean thank you very much <laughs>